What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and again, welcome. This week on the show, in true Smart People Podcast fashion, we've got an expert, we've got a pertinent topic, and we probably are going to shake things up a little bit. This week, we are talking about something that's in the news, that is changing the way we do business, and that is changing the way we interact with each other. This week, we're talking ethics. At a time when fraud and sexual harassment and all these other forms of workplace misconduct are making daily headlines, ethics has become as indispensable a tool for the modern workplace as technology, or as finance. So we thought it would make sense to bring an absolute expert in the topic of ethics on the show, and that's exactly what we did. Our guest this week is John Hooker, and John is a professor of business ethics and social responsibility at Carnegie Mellon University. He has published over 170 research articles, eight books, and five edited volumes on ethics, philosophy, operations research, and cross-cultural issues. And also, he's the founding editor-in-chief of the world's only academic journal dedicated to teaching business ethics. John is also the author of the brand new book, Taking Ethics Seriously, Why Ethics is an Essential Tool for the Modern Workplace. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you this episode. Give it a chance. Despite where you're coming from, despite what you're looking for, this episode only gets better as time goes on. Especially right there in the middle, John starts giving stories about companies that have faced ethical dilemmas and have had to put a price tag on human life to decide what business decisions they should make. 
In fact, as you'll hear John talk about it, ethics are much more like mathematics than something fuzzy like philosophy. So be sure to stick around through the entirety and let us know what you think about these types of conversations. We want to get to know you. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And you've heard us say this, but if you're a huge fan of the show, head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. That's all I'm saying. It's our secret society. Go check it out. And much, much more on the way, including free swag for those that love us. Again, that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society only for the biggest fans. That's it. Tune in your ears, turn on your brain, and get ready for a conversation that will satisfy your curious mind as we talk to John Hooker about ethics and his new book, Taking Ethics Seriously. Enjoy. All right. Well, John, first, I want to say thanks so much and welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be here. So you have this new book called Taking Ethics Seriously, Why Ethics is an Essential Tool for the Modern Workplace. And, you know, it would seem from first glance that we should know ethics is an essential tool. But given everything that's going on, apparently not. So I first just wanted to start with what was the impetus for writing this book? Well, one of the impetus uh, is that I teach ethics. I teach at a business school, and we have ethics as part of our core curriculum. So I want to teach ethics in a way that actually helps people to analyze ethical issues and come to a reasonable conclusion. So I think that's probably the main factor. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, like you just said, analyzing ethics. I have to be honest, one of the first things I thought when I was like, oh, we're going to have John on the show is, why is it that people struggle with this so much? Well, I, I am I was always under the assumption that ethics is something kind of born in you, um, but that's not quite true. And so, what is it about ethics that really needs this intellectual framework? Yeah, so I think there's two things going on here. Um, one is a notion that ethics is something you feel in your gut, just something that's intuitive, uh, when actually it's an ancient field of study. Uh, it's as old as medicine as mathematics. Some of the smartest people who ever lived have strained their brains to try to understand ethics and how to formulate principles of behavior. So we, we, we're, st we're starting with that. And there's also this recent phenomenon in which we are retreating from ra rationality, right? We are told we're in a post-truth age. We use alternative facts. And ethics was actually uh, one of the first victims of this trend. You know, it goes back 20, 30 years and we have the notion that ethics is really just a matter of opinion. Uh, you don't want to impose your values on others. So it's personal values, and there's no objective criteria or no objective basis for making ethical choices. So we have those two trends uh, facing us. And I like to insist that ethics is something like engineering. It's, um, it's a field that requires expertise, requires study and practice. And it's essential for making things work. Engineering makes our physical world work and ethics makes our social world work. Yeah. And when I read that, actually, when you wrote that kind of that aspect, that shocked me because it, it does kind of for somebody that is not learned in the subject, it does seem a little soft in comparison to something like physics. But you make a great case against uh, or, or against that. So I want to ask first, let's start here. Could you define ethics for us in the in, in the best sense possible? 
Yeah, the way I see ethics is that it's a negotiation tool. It's the way that we come to a rational consensus as to how we're going to behave and and deal with each other and work together. So as a result, we have to find principles of behavior that sound reasonable to everyone, something that everyone can buy into at the beginning and use those principles for resolving, for resolving our differences. So this is what I see ethics is. It's a kind of negotiation tool. Now, do you find that we have, as a human species, always struggled with that? Because what I always kind of grapple with is we're all the same being from a DNA level, essentially, right? But knowing, historically speaking, we are also tribal beings, right? So we we want to get along with those in our tribe, but anyone that looks different than us, sounds different than us, feels different than us, we will quite easily attack. And so it's almost like this seems like an impossible undertaking to uh, to come to an agreement with a species that differs so greatly. Well, our first chore is to come to an agreement within a given society or a given culture. It's true that different cultures have different fundamental assumptions about human nature. In fact, I teach a course in this as well, cross-cultural issues. Uh, so as a starting point, let's think about Western culture and the Western tradition and see if we can find common ground. And I think we can. And in fact, we have historically, as I said, in the last 2,300 years at least, people have focused on this issue and made some progress. Hmm. And I definitely want to get into that historical aspect. And as you mentioned, some other courses you teach, let's also get a background, a little bit about what I'm most interested in is um, obviously what you're doing today, but how you got to this point of really dedicating your career to teaching this idea of ethics and social responsibility. Well, I should say I'm a, a sort of a strange being in that I teach both mathematics and ethics. Does that like something that's very different? Yeah. Actually, the two fields are closely related because mathematics is an analytical field. You don't need to gather data or do experiments in a laboratory to obtain mathematical results. Rather, you analyze the concepts and prove some results. Ethics is like that. It's an analytical field. You know, data are relevant to applying the ethics, but the ethical principles themselves derive from thinking through the concepts and coming up with solid arguments for why certain principles make sense. Mm. So I think it's my mathematics background that sort of fit naturally into this task of ethical ethical study. Now, why ethics, though? How, how far back does it go? You know, did you find at some point there was a tipping point where you said, wow, we, we, need to, we need to dig in more? Or were you always interested in perhaps the historical basis of ethics? Actually, I began in mathematics, but I got my first PhD in philosophy, mm. and I was exposed to the ethical literature. And at that point, I did see this commonality. And since then, I've been, I've had a, something, uh, a very complicated career, but I have worked in both ethics and, and mathematics, and now I'm a professor in a business school. Well, that's good enough for me. So let's, let's start here. Uh, give us a little bit of background of this historical study of ethics. Um, as far back as we can go or we understand, when did they start studying it and what did they conclude initially? Well, uh, in the Western tradition, it begins essentially with Socrates. That was 2,300 years ago. And uh, Aristotle has uh, a lot of contributions, which are still uh, important in the virtue ethics tradition today. You find it in the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Enlightenment period, in the 18th, 19th century, uh, you have people like Kant, uh, who made enormous contributions 
And in fact, Kant's work, I think, serves as a foundation for much of what we do today and much of the rigor we can find in ethics today. When did we lose the willingness to really study it? As, as you mentioned, when you hear Socrates and Aristotle, right, we, we're all aware of these folks. It's, it was a, a, a big part of their legacy. Um, but I feel like we don't hear about it too much anymore. So why is that and when did it really fall off as a necessary field of study? Yeah, well, I think one problem is the way that we professors teach ethics. And that is we teach it historically only. You know, no one teaches physics simply by reading the classical works of mm. Copernicus, right? We teach the most recent uh, results. And we should do the same in ethics. But ethic has become frozen in our pedagogy. It's the way it's, we, we, we teach Aristotle and uh, Kant or whatever, Bentham. And it's as though nothing has happened since then. But uh, so that tends to suggest that there's nothing really going on in this field. When there is, there's you know, huge literature in ethics, people thinking hard about these issues, people like me, for example. So I think that's one problem. And another problem is the, the cultural phenomenon I mentioned, the fact that we, because of the diversity of our society, we don't want to impose our values. We want to live and let live. So we tend to see ethics as anti-intellectual. It's just not something that you think about objectively. Rather, just do your own thing and let others do their own thing. So we lose this uh, ability to reach consensus. And as a result, what do we have? Polarization. It seems to be unbridgeable. Ah, and that's what I was going to ask. What is the downside of not taking ethics seriously, as your book suggests? Yes, well, that's one of the downsides. Mm -hmm. It's a complete inability to bridge the polarization. So I think we should take ethics seriously in two senses. One, we should realize how important it is to making things work, you know, so that we can hang together and live in, on the same planet. That's one way it has to be taken seriously. And the other way is we have to take it seriously as an intellectual endeavor. It's hard. You know, I, as I mentioned, I do mathematics and ethics, okay? And I can tell you in an instant which one is harder. And it's not the one that starts with M. <laughs> I can imagine. Because, you know, as you form these proofs in ethics, do you find that the reason it's more difficult is because it's not governed by such a clear-cut law? Or is it the fact that the need to understand ethics is always changing based on the environment, whereas mathematics remains constant. Yeah, so why is it more difficult? Uh, one, of course, in mathematics, you have notation. Notation gives people a lot of problems, but it also helps to structure your thought. Whereas in ethics, we don't have notation. The field is too broad, it's too difficult to capture in, you know, in well-defined notation. So we deal with ordinary language, and as a result, you have to apply more discipline you have to be more careful about how you analyze an issue and not to be distracted by your, by your biases. So I think that's one reason it's, it's more difficult. Let's begin with this idea of making it similar to mathematics in that, you know, I, I, if I go back to my college days where I was started off as a, uh, a, a quantitative finance major, right, and, and then quickly realized I don't understand proofs very well. What I do remember is that there are kind of some basic proofs that that really prove the idea of mathematics, right? Like one equals one, et cetera. What do you find at the basis of ethics? What is the kind of first principle or proof that we need to understand to build everything else off of? Yeah, so there are two basic principles in ethics. One is the universality of reason. That means an argument that makes sense to me should be valid for anyone else. It shouldn't matter who you are 
as to what's valid and what can be defended. And the other is the premise that when you choose to do something, when you act, you act for reasons. You have reasons for what you do. In fact, that is what makes us moral agents. That's what makes us human beings rather than other types of animals. We have reasons for what we do. So you start with that. And then you ask, okay, if I'm going to make a decision, if I'm going to have reasons for it, these reasons have to be coherent. They have to make sense. At least they have to be intelligible to anyone. And you begin with that premise, you can derive some surprisingly substantive results. Oh, man. I, as, <laughs> you know, in the politically divided nature of today, the, even right off, off the bat when you said, the first thing is, if it makes sense to me, it should make sense to you or everyone. And right there I'm going, well, no wonder why it's so hard. How can you ever, and I really, like, maybe give an example, how, how can we come to this agreement that works for an entire culture? Well, let's take an example. Let's suppose I ask the question, is it okay to lie? And, well, why am I lying? Well, maybe it's just convenient. It's convenient for me. You know, it, it helps me to get through the day, to tell a few lies. So I'm going to adopt a policy of lying whenever it's convenient. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if this is a good reason to lie, then I have to grant it's a good reason to lie for anyone who would find it convenient to lie. Mm. You know, if, if it's a reason, then it's a reason. It shouldn't matter what my name is or who I am or what color hair I have. If it's a reason, it's a reason. So I have to grant that anyone who would find it convenient to lie should do so, just as I'm doing. So suppose everyone follows my policy and everyone lies whenever it's convenient. Then what happens? No one believes anyone, right? Everyone's right. So words are just meaningless and so no, no one believes it. So my own lies no longer achieve their purpose. Right? Uh -huh. So I'm, I'm contradicting myself. I'm saying convenience is a good reason to lie. Okay, but I'm saying no, convenience is not a good reason to lie because I don't want anyone else to act on this reason. But that's inconsistent if you're given the universality of reason. If a reason is a reason, and doesn't depend on what your name is, then it's self-contradictory to maintain those two positions at once. So this is why lying is unethical as a rule. It depends on the reason you lie, of course. It's because there's a basic self-contradiction in the, in the reasoning behind your decision to lie. So, okay, it sounds like from its most simple level, that's kind of the golden rule. Is that, is that fair to say? It's, it's a golden rule is a special case. It's actually something called the generalization principle in ethics. So the, the principle is that the reasons for your action should be consistent with the assumption that everyone who has the same reasons acts the same way. That's the principle. Mm. It sounds something like golden rule. The golden rule is, you know, in practice is really, you know, terribly inadequate. And a famous example is, suppose you're a judge passing sentence on a criminal, right? If you were the criminal, you wouldn't want to be sent to jail. So if you're following the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then you would let the criminal go free. So obviously golden rule doesn't work. We need a, a more adequate principle. And the generalization principle is much more powerful and much more reasonable. Okay, and let me and let me try and clarify this again. And thank you for that. That that made sense. Is it also think about your actions and if the greater whole took the same actions, what would the result be? Is that another fair way of looking at it? Yeah, if everyone who has the same reasons mm. were to act those reasons then it must be consistent to assume that everyone's acting on these reasons 
and the purpose of the action is not defeated. I see. Okay. So the reason and the, the two kind of proofs that you laid out for us go together. They have to, they're, they're, uh, they're tied to each other, the reason and if it makes sense to me and you. Yes, that's okay. right. Great. Okay. Nice foundation. I like that. All right. So then let's talk about how do you get a culture to think, be willing to think through these things, right? As opposed to, yeah, yeah, I get it at its core, but I'm just one person, so I'm not going to change the entire ethical conversation. How do you actually help people understand the implications of their actions and, and its role in ethics? Yeah, well, I'm an optimist, and I believe that people are basically reasonable. You are an optimist, by the way. I, as soon as you started talking about this, I was like, you have to be in order to make this part of your life's work. Yeah. So I think we, we are basically reasonable. And one demonstration of this is a, a little game that people often play in classrooms. It's called the ultimatum game. And it goes like this. Okay, so you are, let's suppose that I am going to give everyone $100. Okay, maybe I give half the class, everyone in half the class $100. And I'm going to give those people who receive $100 an opportunity to donate any portion of that $100 to another person in the class. And you just have an opportunity to donate part of it. Okay, if that other person accepts the donation, then you split the money. If the other person refuses the donation that I take all the money back. So that's the little, that's the game. So the question is how much money are people going to donate to their classmates? Well, the, the, the rational thing to do in a sense in from this perspective of self-interest would be to donate $1 to someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. And you keep nine because you know, why would someone turn down a dollar? It's better than nothing. And you get to keep 99. Okay. What people actually do, time after time after time, is on the average, donate about a third of the money. Mm -hmm. And many people donate half. Okay? Mm -hmm. I do this. Well, many, many people say they do it because we're just idiots. We don't understand self-interest. We have these idiotic notions of sharing and so forth. But if you think about it, suppose we were to get together and come up with a policy before the game starts, before we know who has an opportunity to donate and who has an opportunity, opportunity to receive. What kind of policy we would, would we come up with? We'd probably say, let's split it 50-50. Is that right? Split it 50-50, then no one really loses. It. It's a rational policy. Mm -hmm. This rational policy is the policy that most people mm. actually follow more or less. Despite mm. our indoctrination that we should be self-interested, we live in an individualistic society and so forth, we should be out for number one. We persist in this rational policy. It gives me some hope. Yeah. I, it's funny. As you said that, I was like assuming, well, wouldn't it be 50%? But I guess that number would change because when you're talking 100 versus a dollar, I'd be like, ah, I don't need the dollar. If you're talking, you know, 100,000 versus zero, you know, I'd say, okay, I'll take the 1%. So that is an interesting argument to make. And starting there is understandable. But then how do you kind of square uh, everything that's going on today. I mean, really, I'd imagine part of writing this book now is is this continual decline in ethics, apparently. We see it with everyone, from politicians to business people. The Me Too movement is really uh, seemingly uh, putting that out there, but also corporations, right? I know your book has a 
has a focus on businesses as well uh, and in the workplace. So corporate ethics. You know, what is it about today's environment that is causing such a failure in ethics? Well, I think in many cases, it's because the issues are getting more complicated. Mm. We live in a very complicated world, fast moving and new technologies. Our social systems are so huge and intricate and complicated that it's not obvious what to do. In fact, there's a notion out there that, you know, when you see unethical behavior, it's because of the scoundrels out there, the Bernie Madoffs, people like that. This is why we have this unethical behavior. Well, the media, you know, tends to lead us to that direction because the unethical guys, the scoundrels, you know, make great copy, you know, for, for media. It's a sexy story. But I would argue that in most cases, when our organizations go astray ethically, it's because we just don't know how to understand the issue. We just don't know what's ethical. And I have a great, uh, several great stories. I'll give you one. Yeah, let's hear them. A fairly old one. So this is a uh, Ford Motor Company used to make a car called the Pinto. It was back in the 1970s. It's a very famous case. And um, it turned out that there was a defect in the gas tank. And if you have a parking lot, you know, bumper to bumper collision, the gas tank could explode and incinerate everyone in the car. Okay, so uh, the people at Ford looked at this. And they reasoned that if we were to fix this, it would cost $11 per car. Okay? Mm-hmm. And if we don't fix it, you know, a certain number of people are going to get incinerated. If you, if you assign a certain reasonable, you know, well-accepted value to human life and the cost of injuries and add up the cost and the benefits, even if you double the cost of injuries, it turns out that from a cost-benefit point of view, it makes sense not to fix it. The benefit is less than the cost. So they didn't fix it, okay? And one of the people involved actually wrote a paper about this in an ethics journal. He now teaches in a business school. And he reports that he agreed, he continued to agree with this decision at Ford for years and years after he made it and became a professor. In fact, at the time, he drove a Pinto himself, okay? Then at some point, he decided he was wrong and changed his mind and decided they should have recalled the cars and fixed the defect. Okay, so what's going on there? First of all, it's not because they were bad people. I mean, these guys were making a conscious decision that they thought was justified. In particular, the professor, you know, he was—he went into this field to make a contribution to society. He's a good guy. He just didn't know how to think about it. And for years afterward, he didn't know, you know, how to make this decision. And finally, he changed his mind, but he didn't really know why he changed his mind. So what's the problem here? We don't have an intellectual basis for making that call. So what was wrong with Ford's decision? It's a violation of autonomy without informed consent. And that's a long story to explain why that's true. But there's, if you, you have an ethical framework for judging the issue, then you can call it in about five minutes. I see. Okay. So in that example, wow. Wow. The, the autonomy without informed consent is not just saying, hey, guys, this feels wrong viscerally. It's actually proving why, in this example, Ford should have recalled the cars. Yeah, so it's based on a principle. It takes, you know, quite a while to develop. Sure. But the principle is that if you cause serious injury or death, that's a violation of autonomy. But it's a violation of autonomy if the person who takes the risk by driving the car has not given informed consent to the risk. Right. Okay. So obviously, if you manufacture a car, you know that some people are going to be killed in them. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you get into a car and drive it, you take that risk voluntarily. You know the risk and so forth. But if there is a defect in the car that's unusual and you don't know about this, you're not assuming that risk. There's no informed consent. That's what makes it a violation of autonomy. 
So that's why it was unethical. See, and, and this is what I'm now, I'm so interested right here, okay? That to me, as soon as you said it, I was disgusted. I literally felt it in my gut, right? How can anyone make that decision and feel okay with it? Despite the rationale, the fact that putting a cost on human life seems quite incredible to me. However, I'm sure you have examples where the gut feeling actually you've gone through the ethical criteria is not right. Do you have any off the top of your head that you could share with us that might feel uncomfortable, but, you know, rationally you could think through and come to that conclusion? Well, first of all, this idea of putting a cost in human life is, is routinely done. Sure. It's done for decades. You have to do it. So, for example, if you're a city and you're allocating your budget, you can allocate budget to education or you can allocate it to traffic, safe, to traffic safety. So if you put an infinite value on human life, you're going to spend all your money on traffic safety. And you're not going to have any schools. Okay, so you just can't do that. It's just not practical. But that issue, that whole uh, criterion for evaluating the situation is a utilitarian criterion, which is important, but it's only one of the criteria we use in ethics. And, and um, uh, autonomy is another one. The generalization principle is the third one. Okay, so uh, a- another case um, that might not seem, uh, that might seem counterintuitive is a company called the Guided Corporation that made a, um, a defibrillator for the heart. And it turned out that after many of these were sold, there was a defect in it. So there was a discussion about whether they should notify the doctors who implanted the defibrillators and warn them about this defect so that they could um, replace it in the patients. Or should perhaps they tell the patients personally about this defect. And the company decided not to notify the doctors or the patients about this. They weren't required to do so by law. Okay? And the reasoning was that the risk of replacing the defibrillator was greater than the risk of leaving it in the body. Okay, so that's why they didn't do it. And in fact, the law, the regulations allow this for precisely that reason, because it may be more dangerous to replace the product than to leave it there. That was a very hard decision to make. And the executives concerned, uh, you know, were roundly criticized for it, and they were accused of conflicts of interest and so forth. But if you analyze this case, they actually made the right decision. Uh, it's a bit of a long story, but there was no violation of autonomy there. They were following generalization principle, and it was obviously the utilitarian decision because the patients were better off actually not replacing the defective product. Yeah, I can see these struggles, and I can see why it translates so directly to the business world. And I actually, I, I read a paper that you wrote, um, which was the, the case against business ethics education. And it, it's really fascinating. I, w- I was wondering if you'd be okay if we went through some of the arguments you present in there. No problem. So the, the one, and what it seems like a lot of these stories are driving is this idea that you call it the Milton Friedman argument, where uh, the, the, really the business of business is profit. And so if you can properly assign value to things like life and all that, then it's simple. You, you just take the equation and you say the cost of doing it is, you know, greater than the, the benefit in terms of cost. So we're not going to do it. Uh, how does that argument play a role in ethics? And uh, what's the where do you come out on that equation? OK, first to clarify, in the Ford case I mentioned, they did a cost benefit analysis. But this wasn't simply from the point of view of the company. They were considering costs and benefits to everyone who was affected by their decision, mm. including the, the customer. Now, for Milton Freeman, 
his his claim is that we should consider costs and benefits only for the company, and the company should make decisions uh, that maximize stock, you know, shareholder value and so forth, as long as they're legal, and follow generally accepted rules of fair play. Mm. So he makes a statement of that kind. So so with that, then let's take the same question. What is, is it the fact that in his argument, you don't take in the social responsibility aspect? He thinks that you're, 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 um, adhering to social responsibility if you maximize profit. That's the uh, way you're responsible in business. That's his view. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, what about the, you know, the one that, the other one that jumped out to me was the moral development argument, which is that moral character is formed in childhood. And if we do learn this, say in college, which is what you're teaching, right, and, and arguing against this, then, then uh, it's too late to change. And we do hear this so much, right? So much of how we think and who we are is solidified extremely early on. And and I find a lot of people's differences come from the early upbringing. So what's going on there? Well, this has been studied very carefully over the years in developmental psychology, and the leading figure in this area is Lawrence Kohlberg. And uh, the psychologists have found that we develop morally throughout our lives. We go through stages of development. In fact, we have stages that parallel our social development, our cognitive development, and ethical development, even religious development. And all these um, stages tend to move in parallel. Uh, And to reach the most highly developed uh, stage of ethics, basically, it takes a lifetime. You know, you may reach it in your 60s, so I should be there myself, I hope. (laughs) Yeah. So it's something that actually takes, you know, decades and ethical reasoning and education are part of that development, just as are part of they're part of your social development and cognitive development. Mm-hmm. You know, learning, you know, learning how to think helps us to get along with people, helps us to understand other people's points of view. And that's basically what ethics is all about. Understanding someone else's point of view and reconciling it with yours. And beginning with the assumption that everyone's point of view should be equally valid if they're based on rational considerations, because rationality is universal, at least we assume that. You know. So, yeah, uh, this, is a, this is a daunting challenge. It takes a long time to learn how to do this, and it's a lifetime project. Right. Well, and, and the thing that I keep coming back to, and maybe you're highlighting my pessimism, um, is this idea of rationality. And I guess I agree, we, we try to be rational, but of course I feel like I'm more rational than most, and I, I know that everyone thinks that to some extent. I want to talk about a comment you made at the beginning, which is we live in this post-truth age. Uh When you said it's about 20 or 30 years ago. When did that happen? What was the moment there that you feel started this decline in the value of truth? Yeah, well, it seems it goes back to the 1960s. You know, I'm a child of the 60s. A lot of good things happened in the 60s and some bad things happened in the 60s. And I think one of the bad things was the retreat from rationality and later in the 80s, we had the cultural studies movement, which basically argued that a text really has no uh, transparent meaning. It's all s- subtext and truth or falsity is not really a concern for us. It's all political. And so we have those trends that began basically in the 60s. Yeah. And then did it obviously do you feel like today it's the precipice like it is the has it ever been greater than it is at this moment today? Well, that really requires more insight in the history than I have. Yeah. At least in my lifetime, it's never been this bad. I can say that much. That's what I meant. Yeah, re- I guess recent history. How do we get out of it from here? Yes, I think there are already some, there's some backlash already. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't hear it too often, but um, 
I, I think um, you find some interest groups and some some coalitions of people who are trying to restore rational thought in their particular issue, their particular domain. And, uh, you know, I hope people like me, teachers, mm-hmm. professors, can contribute to this. This is, after all, our mission in life, you know, to, to base our conclusions on rational considerations. This is why we exist. This is our profession. And I hope we can contribute as well. How much, I mean, given that you work with students, right, so young adults who are obviously the ones really pushing the social media and the, the innovation in that field and, and information um, availability, how much do you think that has had an impact on our, first, our ethical basis and also, um, you know, this post-truth age, which is the ability to put your information out there to anyone, say whatever you want, have it instantly read by far more than ever thought possible. Is that a, a, a kind of putting uh, gas on the fire? Well, everyone, you know, points out that social media allow you to, you know, become isolated in your little echo chamber, mm-hmm. your online echo chamber. And I think that's certainly true. Uh, but it's not just social media. It's uh, mainstream media. Right. And you know, we have certain media outlets that focus on certain point of view and people only, you know, watch or listen to the, the media that reinforces their views. You know, all this is going on. Social media is one factor, I think. Yeah, sure. See, and here's what I'm struggling with. One of the comments we get most on this podcast is, you know, I appreciate listening because you honestly sound like you're willing to analyze a subject, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And I, I take that very seriously in my life. So I actually seek out opinions different from mine. You know, maybe it's on Facebook, but specifically in the news, I will say, okay, this argument seems logical to me. Who is making the counter argument? And let me go read that. I don't feel like a lot of people do that. What is your opinion there? And and do you think there is value in specifically? I'm thinking of mainstream media, right? If people were willing to actively seek out the opposite side with as open mind as possible. Okay. Well, actually, my opinion is that we shouldn't have opinions. In fact, I, I, tell, I tell my students this. I said, I tell them, don't form opinions. I mean, why do you have to have an opinion? Why can't you just be curious? Why can't you just say, I wonder what the truth is? I would like to know. This is what I do. You know, you know frankly, you know, the more I teach ethics, the fewer opinions I have. I just don't come down on one side or the other unless I have to, right? You know, we, in practice, when you have to make a decision, yeah, you have to make a call then. All right. Or someone's asking you, you know, for a recommendation, you have to make a call. But otherwise, why have an opinion? I mean, this is the age of opinion surveys, right? People ask you your opinion on something you know nothing about. And it's okay to have an opinion about something you just sort of make up on the spot. Let's just don't do that. And if you don't have opinions, you're not committed to something. You don't have emotional investment and ego investment in it. You're just out there trying to figure things out, figure out what's going on. So I think that's a first step. Just don't have opinions. You know, I love that explanation. Curiosity is at the core of, of this podcast. And maybe that is, I've never had a, a, I've never thought of the term in that way. You know, why is it so easy for some to see multiple sides or dig up as much information as possible because of the willingness to let go of opinions? But in the same token, as you mentioned, we often have to make decisions based on our information. So again, going back to this idea of politics, you know, say uh, you, you have to make a decision on 
taxation or or gun control or um, you know equality, whatever it might be, and that will inform your voting. I guess. How do we get to that, and does it help to look at multiple quote unquote opinions there? Yes. Well, obviously, when you vote, uh, you have to make a call at that point. But uh, you know, uh, there are so many factors. Uh, you know, the people you vote for may or may not agree with you. You really don't know what their view is. You don't know what policies they're really going to support when it comes down to it. So. You know, maybe it's not necessary to resolve all of these issues to vote. Maybe you're voting for a person who you think will be reasonable and will listen to both sides of the argument and has some kind of justification for his or her uh, decisions. You know, in fact, that's my criterion for the most part. Am I, mm -hmm. am I voting for someone who will take a rational point of view and make a reasonable decision that's not influenced too much by ideology? Yes. Yes. I love that. I've had that conversation many times is I, I try to focus most on the person I believe. I mean, I guess I look at it from a lower, less educated level than you, but I think of it as who's the smartest, like, and I don't mean smarts in terms of, uh, what they, you know, remember or memorize. It is that who do I feel has the greatest ability to use all of the information at their disposal to make the, the most well-informed decision. So here's what I want to do, if we could, and if time permits, because I don't know what the process looks like. I'd like to take a very divisive issue and see how somebody would walk through it using this underpinning of ethics. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, one that has just come up multiple times, I don't know why uh, for me, but is this idea of gun restrictions, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You have, call it, the side that says we, we shouldn't have guns at all, right? If we were to take two opinions, no guns, they're the worst thing ever. And then the ones that said everyone should have guns and there should be no restrictions. How do we take those two people who are fighting fiercely and utilize yeah. this field of ethics to come to a, a decision? Yeah, so I should say, first of all, that when someone poses to me an ethical issue, I don't have a quick answer. Sure. In fact, even, you know, even when students post to me little issues you know, in their workplace, maybe a small matter, I have to think about it two or three, four weeks wow. to come up. <laughs> you know, with a reasonable response. And even then, I'm not sure. Sure. So, so right. So I, I don't have a final answer for you. That's fine. Yeah. So, 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 so on the gun thing, of course, we have a number of issues that coalesce. Uh, the gun issue is really a symbolic issue. It, it stands for something bigger. Okay. Um, it's a lot like the abortion issue. Now, the abortion issue is important in itself, but this is a symbolic issue that represents family values, you know, versus freedom and so forth, so women's rights, right? It's a, it's a symbolic issue that's concrete, but it represents a big cluster of abstract, you know, issues. And the gun thing is that. So people who are pro-gun are also thinking about freedom, you know, and if the role, the proper role of the government, the individual rights of the citizen, uh, you know, removing themselves from government oppression. And people who are opposed to gun are thinking about how we should care for each other, how we should uh, you know, promote safety in a safe in, in environment. Yeah, right, so both sides are working out of worldviews that have much validity, and there's much to be said you know, for reigning in the government and maintaining individual freedom. And on the other side, there's much to be said for maintaining a safe environment and removing danger from our lives, okay? Uh, so, 
you, you can't resolve these huge issues by focusing on one public policy issue like gun control. So much of gun control, you know, uh, boils down to practical issues. You know, can we have a, you know, a reasonable compromise that allows you know, hunting and things like this versus maintaining safety in our schools and our streets? Can we have a you know, reasonable? But what's really going on are these huge issues of which the guns are a symbol. And that's going to take a long time to resolve. We have to work together on this over the long term. What about this idea? Because I agree with you, the, the, a lot of the pro-gun, it's an abstract issue. Can we, or is there a part of, of ethics that says, look, let's not abstract it. It's very concrete. We're not, we're not talking about, we're not doing that slippery slope argument of we take one, then we take them all or anything like that. It's just clear cut. Now let's talk about it. Is that possible? Do you have a framework for that? Well, yeah, ethics is really designed for individual decisions. You know, what do I do today? Mm. You know, the fact is none of us has in our power to make this decision about guns. It's not up to us. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's up to a bunch of legislatures and so forth that we have no control over. So, yeah, it's a really different, different type of dilemma that I normally look at because I look at dilemmas that we individuals actually face and can make a choice. Whereas we individuals don't have a choice in this area. You know, it's not up to us. It's a public policy issue, so it requires some, some tools that don't come solely out of ethics. It requires other social policy tools and so forth concepts. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and I like this idea of it's a tool for individual decision making. That makes it, it you know, it makes it uh, actionable. And so what do you recommend for for each of us that's listening, of course, you know, the, the book goes into a lot of detail here. I think it's a fabulous foundation. Taking ethics seriously is the book. Um, how can we begin to think of and utilize ethics as a consistent rationale, a formulation of thought, and then implement that into our lives? How can we walk us through maybe a few steps to, from this point on, utilize it in tough decision making? Yes, well, it's all a matter of practice. You know, you can do anything if you practice enough. Mm -hmm. You can play a, a, a Beethoven sonata if you practice long enough. Okay, uh, so it's like that with ethics. Start with something small and think about generalizability. You know, a small issue, something you do today. And make a habit of this. You know, for one, th one thing, it's fun. You know, it's sort of fun to think through these little issues everyday issues. So for example, you're in the grocery mm -hmm. and there is a, uh, a queue that says, you know, express lane, 10 items or less. <laughs> and you have 13 items in your basket. Are you going to go through that lane or not? Okay. So think that through, you know, so you generalize it and, and so forth. And think about whether that's the right thing to do. It's a small issue. Actually, it's a rather tough one. So you can just do that. Just start it with small issues, sort of you know, something to do while you're waiting in that queue. Think about it. And you get good at this after a while. It takes, you know, think about how long it takes to learn calculus. You know, you don't learn calculus in a couple of weeks. Okay. It takes, you know, years and years. But with practice, you enjoy this. And it has the benefit that you have some basis for your decisions. Sometimes you can feel good about them rather than just emoting and, you know, arguing with people about it. You can have some basis for it. Yeah. So it's almost as if the first step and the most necessary is to move it from a reactionary thought to a proactive thought, to something that is conscious and thought through and has has a basis and reason as opposed to it just makes sense or it feels good in the moment. That's the first step. 
Yes, and start with something small that you're not emotionally involved in, something without ego involvement. Right. Something you don't really care about. Just sort of a entertainment, you know, pastime. And now, get good at okay. this. Then you look at the hard ones. Yeah. What about those those individuals that do not do this at all? Because as you mentioned, so the, the grocery line example, for, you know, for one, I do feel that there's most people. I mean, the reason why that line is not full of people with grocery carts or at least 20 items is because most people do think I should stick to that. Right. So I, I'm kind of coming around to this idea. We we all are rational for the most part, but you do have those bad eggs. Right. And it could be the Bernie Madoffs, but even the person who just totally dismisses that idea of 10 grocery items and goes in with 20, the grocery store is going to let them do it. What's going on in their head? Yeah. Well, this is an issue in psychology. And I'm not a psychologist. Right. But, but, you know, I can say this much. If we make, you know, ethical reasons part of our social conversation, part of our culture, then not everyone has to understand why. Give an example. You know, I often ask my students, what's wrong with cheating on the exam? You know, I've been teaching a long time and I have yet to find a single student ever who could tell me what's wrong with cheating on an exam. Hmm. OK, they don't have they have no idea. Nonetheless, most students don't cheat because it's sort of part of the academic culture. You're not supposed to cheat. You know, we just don't do this. OK, you know, I can explain in a couple of minutes why mm-hmm. and I explain to them. Uh, but, you know, it's not necessary for everyone to follow through the arguments. It's just necessary to be for it to be part of our social conversation so it becomes an accepted value. So if they have the right accepted values, we have to have a certain critical mass of people who think these things. It doesn't have to be everyone. Would you mind taking a couple minutes to explain why we yes, shouldn't okay. cheat? That That's a really interesting one to me. I've had discussions about this. All right. So this is a generalization principle. If, suppose I decide to cheat with my smartphone. Okay. And so I ask, you know, why am I cheating? Well, it's because I can get away with it, let's say, and because this good grade will get me a good job. I have two reasons for cheating. Now I ask myself, okay, how many people in the school have these same reasons? Everyone, right? At least everyone who can get away with it has the same reasons. They want a good job. They want the good grades. So if everyone's going to follow my policy, then everyone's going to be bringing their smartphones into the exam and cheating. Then what's going to happen? Well, either the grades are going to be meaningless, everyone's going to have an A+, the employers will just throw your resume in the trash, or the school's going to crack down, you won't be able to get away with it anymore. In other words, the reasons for my cheating, getting a good job or getting away with it, are not consistent with the assumption that everyone who has the same reasons, namely all the students, acts on acts the same way by cheating. Okay, so it's a straightforward violation of generalization principle. Wow, I like that. That was cool to go through. Thank you. You know, so then, and again, forgive me if this is outside of the realm of ethics, but then I go, okay, I agree with that. However, shouldn't the impetus then be on the school or the education system to grade students in a way that you can't simply cheat with a smartphone, right? If if it's something I can pull up in two seconds on a phone that we're going to have forever, well, I shouldn't be judged on that. Any thoughts there? There's two issues there. One is, what should the student do about cheating? And what should the school do about cheating? Mm. From the student's point of view, it's a generalization argument. I just gave that. Right. From the school's point of view, it's a utilitarian argument. Right. If there's too much cheating, mm. then education is going to suffer. Okay. So the school has to make it hard to cheat. I make it hard to cheat in my classes. Mm-hmm. That's my ethical obligation. 
Okay, I should make it hard to cheat, but that doesn't say the, the responsibility is simply mine to make sure there's no cheating. It's also the student's responsibility to be ethical and not to cheat, even if it's possible. Interesting. It's a very interesting topic. I really appreciate it, John. You've opened my eyes in a way I really hadn't thought of things. And although I try to keep curiosity and conscious thought at the forefront, uh, your book and this conversation will help move that forward. So again, the book is Taking Ethics Seriously, Why Ethics is an Essential Tool for the Modern Workplace. And John, I just wanted to ask, um, is there anywhere else that you know people can read up on this or you uh, do you have resources or recommendations to continue this conversation outside of your book? I have a blog. It's called Ethical Decisions Blog, uh, in which I uh, consider ethical issues, analyze them, and readers can post their own issues and can post their own comments. Ah, well, I will be heading straight there because I want to see how you tackle some of these. John, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Have a great one. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Hooker. John's book, Taking Ethics Seriously, Why Ethics is an Essential Tool for the Modern Workplace on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And of course, if you decide to purchase on Amazon, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. All purchases you make through that link come at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for the show. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, check out all the old episodes, sign up for the newsletter, all that good stuff. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we will see you all next episode.